And ah, the magic hour has arrived. Let me just make sure. And again, nobody will see on Facebook um, because, oh, there, I see it's on Facebook. Not because I'm spotlighted, but I, I want to share this on Facebook for a moment. Let me share. So give me a moment here. You know, um, Facebook has been quite, quite interesting as of late. They don't, um, they don't seem to tell you when there's a live video going on like they used to. Hmm. Um, you want me to hop on real quick? No, 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 it's working. Um, I see it. It's just, I, you know, I'm in my wife's account. You know, it's not saying, you know, not giving any notifications. Um, one second, I'm about to share it. Sharing is caring, so I'm going to share the class. Um, share now. Okay, we're shared. But if anybody wants to come on Zoom, let me know. Okay. And one more place I need to share it, and then we'll get going. Um, one second. Share now. And uh, Facebook is always Facebook is always a moment behind. Share. Oh, one second. Sorry. So it always takes a moment to share. See, even now, doesn't, um, I don't know, Facebook, Facebook is a good idea. Sorry. So uh, it's great to see you all for the third class of resurrection as a sort of final class, just to give you a heads up. Um, I don't think we have a, we don't have a class schedule for next Thursday, but um, next Wednesday, but I, I may make something. We'll see then. Uh, but as of now, the next thing coming up is Tisha B'Av, the fast of the month of Av. All right, we're all shared out, so I'm here with you. Um, the next the next thing up is Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. That will be Saturday night and Sunday. That's a fast day. And um, so we'll do on the eve, a Saturday eve, we're going to gather in the synagogue for Megillat Eicha for the Book of Lamentations. I will also put it on Zoom and Facebook. And then in the morning, Sunday morning, we'll have prayer services at the synagogue, followed by, for those who want to stick around, study of the Talmud and sections of the Talmud that are, um, talk about the destruction of the temple, and that will also be on Facebook and Zoom. And then in the evening, there's prayers again with the Torah reading uh, to end the fasting. So without further ado, let's get to our topic about resurrection, death before coming back alive. So as always, I start with a joke and like you have to know when the jokes are shorter. The, when the jokes are shorter, the jokes are worse. So today's joke goes like this. I used to be a bar, I used to be a banker, but I lost interest. Ah, okay. So why am I talking about that? So this is going to be a lead into our topic of today. Uh, one of the most amazing discoveries, and anybody who uh, has ever read Dave Ramsey, but really any, anybody who gets into financial, you know about the idea of compound interest. Compound interest is one of the most powerful financial tools that a person can have because with compound interest, um, you can take your same money and it builds and it builds and it builds and you're growing your original money. But the whole, ma the whole magic of compound interest is the fact that it's building on the money that's already there. And so it grows in stages and ultimately building on what's already there. But imagine if I were to tell you that you can make more money with interest by taking away 
by divesting money every month, taking out money every month, right? You say that's that's mashogah. You can't do such a thing. You can't you can't take a step forward by taking something out, right? That's not usually how it works. You need to add in to make more money. You can't take out. Uh, but the truth is that uh, in some areas, actually, you have to take away in order to take a step forward. As I'm sure you all know the example. If you want to jump higher, you need to bend down. But today we're going to take it even a step further. Sometimes we need to totally uh, change our paradigms to get to a new stage in a new era. And this is um, no more apparent than in the resurrection of the dead. When we discuss the resurrection of the dead, um, typically we obviously imagine that the, um, in the resurrection of the dead, that uh, those who are dead will come back alive and those who are alive will live uh, happy forevermore. The interesting thing, though, is that um, if we are alive when the time of the resurrection comes, we may have to die first, come back alive. So let's take a look over here at this text. Sounds pretty crazy. So this is from the Zohar. The Zohar says, until the redemption, death is a result of negative forces, right? It started with the sin of uh, Adam and Eve. From then on, it is as the verse states, only God will give life and death. This teaches us. That at that time, concerning all those who have not yet tasted death, God will give them a taste and immediately revive them. So it sounds like when the resurrection comes, you might like be a little jealous of all those who died, right? You might say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I haven't died yet. I just wish, just, I, just wish I could die. And God's going to say, you know what? You know, this feels so bad you didn't get a taste of death. Uh, here, you could die for a second and come back to life. When we think about it, it sounds a little crazy. Like the whole idea of resurrection to me would seem practical. If the if the point of resurrection is that all those who were dead have to come back to life because they need to be here for the goodies of the messianic era. So then those who are dead need to come back to life. Why those who are alive need to die? What would be the purpose? In fact, so that was the Zohar. This is, the Talmud takes it a step further. The Talmud actually mentions it says a story there was once a, uh and we know uh in jewish tradition it says that sadiqim righteous people when they die they don't decompose righteous people they stay as they are they don't decompose in fact i actually heard from uh one of the people in the chemar kadish the holy society who dug the grave uh for the rebbe at the ohel in queens um that when they were digging over there at one point uh the, uh, the Rebbe is buried right next to his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe. And when they were digging, at one point, a lot of the uh, earth collapsed and they saw the coffin of the previous Rebbe still there all intact, not rotted at all. Just the coffin. And I heard this firsthand. Um, and, and there are many, many stories that we know firsthand of, of tzaddikim, righteous people who passed away and they were still fully intact. So in Jewish tradition, Someone who's passed away is still fully intact. And the Talmud actually talks about it. It says that uh, the story was that Rav Nachman, he was a rabbi, he came across another rabbi in his grave somehow when they were talking. Again, obviously some spiritual event. And uh, at some point, Rav Nachman asked him, and he said, but doesn't it say in the Torah, you know, you come from the dust and you shall return to the dust. And so like, you know, if all tzaddikim, all righteous people don't decompose, how are you, you know, what about the verse? He says, you should return to the dust. So he answered him and he said, for the righteous people, we will return to the dust and as we will decompose a moment before the resurrection. Which again, sounds strange. 
like to me decomp decomp decomposing is a practical matter should return to the dust or as we learned the journey of the soul it's a matter of um cleansing it's a cleansing process to allow the body to decompose but a tzaddik who lived a righteous life their body stays on so why is it necessary for a tzaddik for their bodies to decompose if there's no practical point in it why do their bodies decompose and back to our original question why those of us who are alive do we need to die a moment before the resurrection what is going on over here and so this will bring us into the discussion of the two types of growth. So I always like to um, go over what I said, PowerPoint. By the way, if at any point I start talking in tongues like last time, let me know, please. Uh, I watched the video, it was really cool, but uh, it doesn't mean I wanna subject you to it again. So um, let's take a look over here in our uh, uh, PowerPoint, just to give you an idea. So today's class will be all about um, exponential growth. Um, and this is bringing out the idea I spoke about interest, right? If you want compound interest, you can't take away money. It doesn't work like that. Um, and it says everyone is going to die prior to the resurrection. And our question, our driving question today of the class is why is it important that we die before we're resurrected? There's seemingly no practical reason there. And to answer this, we're going to have to turn to a curious, section in the Talmud, which talks about two types of growth or, or one type of growth. We're going to turn to a curious section in the Talmud about Rabbi Zeira, Rabbi Zeira. So we're going to take a look over here at Rabbi Zeira. Um, so let me actually show you Rabbi, Rabbi Zeira, the text. So here's the text. <clears throat> so this is from the Talmud. Talmud says there's a great rabbi. His name was Rabbi Zeira. So again, we have our driving question of the class. Why do we have to die or decompose before we come back alive? We're going to pause for a moment to talk about growth, and then we'll come back to answer that question. So we're going to put the question aside. When we talk about growth, we're going to first start off this discussion with this story of Rabbi Zerah. So it says, when Rabbi Zerah ascended from Babylonia to the land of Israel, he fasted 100 fasts so that he would forget the Babylonian method of studying Talmud so that it would not hinder him. So again, he lived in Babylon, or Bavel, as it's called. He studied the Babylonian Talmud. He was a great sage in the Babylonian Talmud. He went to Israel, where they studied the Jerusalem Talmud. And he wanted to learn the Jerusalem Talmud really well. So he realized that he, for whatever reason, he won't be able to understand the Jerusalem Talmud unless he fasts and forgets the Jerusalem Talmud, which sounds very strange because why would you need to erase your old knowledge to gain new knowledge, right? Imagine I would say, well, um, you're studying the Chumash, the five books of Moses. If you wanna understand the books of the prophets, first you need to forget the five books of Moses, right? No, knowledge is accumulative, one is built on the other. Or I were to say you study the Chumash, now you wanna study the Mishnah, you need to first forget the Chumash, the five books of Moses, so you can study the Mishnah of the Talmud. Like, and, or, or let's take an even better example. Did anybody here before they started studying Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, forget their previous knowledge? Like what is Rabbi, what exactly is Rabbi Zerah doing? Fasting hundred fasts just to forget what he had, what he had known before. And the answer is, is as I'm, as I've been hinting all along is that there, there are two ways that we can acquire knowledge. And there is what's called accumulative growth um 
and there's exponential growth. Now, cumulative growth can apply whenever the two things are relative, even if it's a lot. So for example, um, the ocean is a lot of drops of water, right? Now, is there a relationship between one drop of water and the ocean? Yes, because at the end of the day, the ocean is made out of many, many little drops of water. If I were to add many, many drops of water, eventually I'll get to the ocean. But is there a relationship between air and water and the ocean? Not really. If I add many drops of air, uh, many, many bursts of air, I will never get to an ocean. A good example, and this is math. With numbers, if I have the number one, I can get to any number that I want to in the universe, right? But if I start with a number zero, you're not going anywhere, right? One time, right? The question I was asking in the first grade, you know, one times zero, 10 times zero, 100 times zero, 30 times zero. No matter how many times you, you take zero, you're not going to get anywhere. So the idea is what I'm trying to present is in order for there to be a cumulative growth, there needs, the two things need to be related. They need to be on the same wavelength, even if they're very far apart, in order to get from step A to step B to step C to step D, you need to have a relationship. So in money, when, when you do compound interest, that's money. So more dollars equals more dollars, eventually it gets very great. Um, however, when two things are not related, the question is how do I get from step A to step B? How do I, if, if, if the growth is not related, how do I get from one level to the next? And the answer is that in a sense, you have to abandon your old positions in order to reach the new ones. And so let's take a look here at some text. Uh, let's read this over here. It's from the Rebbe. He says, there are two approaches to study. One is which the student progresses from simpler to more challenging material. At first, they study a simple matter and then something more challenging and the greater their mastery of the simpler material, the more it will contribute to the mastery of the more challenging material, right? So you learn Chumash, you learn the five books of Moses, will help you understand the books of the prophets. That's accumulative. But then there is another greater way a person can academically progress. Now, the manner which progress is achieved in the first way mentioned above is only relevant when the two subject matters have a relative value to one another. However, when they are categorically different from one another and the more complex material is infinite and the more complex material is infinitely greater than the simpler one, not only will mastery of the simpler matter not contribute to gaining the mastery of the greater matter, it will actually be a distraction. I'll give you an example, but I'll give you lots of examples. I'll give you a simple example. <laughs> no matter how great your mastery of English is, you will not be able to read Hebrew. You have to, in, in a sense, uh, if you keep trying to read the English letters in the Hebrew language, you might get confused. I'll have better examples, just throwing out one simple example. But I, I, I'm actually going to have a lot of fascinating examples. You wouldn't believe um, in the world how many things there are to this. But um, so based on this paradigm, what Rabbi Zera was doing is he realized it's not the information of the Babylonian Talmud that was the problem. Knowledge of the Babylonian Talmud was not his problem to understanding the Jerusalem Talmud. It was the method of study. The method of study for Babylonian Talmud and Jerusalem Talmud is so vastly different he had to forget his method and way of analyzing information because the way you analyze information in the Babylonian Talmud is so vastly different than the Jerusalem Talmud, which is why, by the way, parenthetically, we don't rule by the Jerusalem Talmud. We say it's, it's a logic that we don't really grasp onto. So we, we can only rule based on things we understand. If you look in the Jerusalem Talmud, it's not like the Babylonian Talmud at all. The Babylonian Talmud has a lot of deduction and questions every angle. The Jerusalem Talmud is like a straight shooter. Um, so it's, it's a type of logic that's totally different. 
And to be frank, I personally don't really understand this. I mean, it's pretty straight, but I don't know. I don't really grasp or get the idea of the Jerusalem Talmud. Or Abzair had the same problem. He said, the Jerusalem Talmud, how, how are they getting to these conclusions? What is their method of study? And he realized as long as he was stuck in his previous model of understanding, he would not understand the, the, the Babylonian Talmud. It was a totally and radically different method of study. And so he had to forget his method of study. The information, whatever, that's not a big deal. It's the method of study that was getting in the way. And so that's why he had to do this. And there are many, many examples of this in, uh, in Jewish thought. And I'll also bring you examples in, in the world. I'll give you one example. It says that um, a soul in the Garden of Eden, it says a soul in the Garden of Eden, when you want to go up a level, you pass through what's called a fiery river. Okay, so you're in heaven. You're not in hell. It says when you want to go from one level of Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, to another level of Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, you need to pass through a fiery pillar, a fiery river. And I ask you, why? That's not fair. He, he's, he's a holy person. Why does he have to get burnt up in this fiery river? And the answer is that from one level in the Garden of Eden to the next is an exponential growth. And so in order to get to the next level, he had to um, get, you have to get rid of your old paradigm and understanding. So let's take a look at a text over here. Um, do, 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 do. Let's take a look at a text over here. And again, all of this, you will see how all this ties together. The study method of the Jerusalem Talmud is to reach a conclusion as soon as possible without too much discourse or rebuttal of rebuttals and answer. The study method of the Babylonian Talmud embraces broad discourse and many rebuttals and answers. And only thereafter does it finally reach a conclusion. In other words, the disparity between the Jerusalem and the Babylonian Talmud is not only the content of their conclusions. In fact, many times they reach the same conclusion. The disparity is in their approach. In the Jerusalemite method, when the student learns a particular idea, he immediately finds a common thread that links it to another idea thereby comparing ideas alongside each other. In the Babylonian method, when the student learns something, he immediately looks for the whole the question. Why do we need a numbered list? Or why are the ideas arranged in a particular order? After the student toils to come up with an answer, he then asks further questions, and only after elaborate process does he finally reach a conclusion. If you didn't understand, that's okay. I don't either. Accordingly, the Talmud never meant that Rabbi Zera actually, I never did my 100 fasts. So I don't understand the Jerusalem Talmud. Accordingly, the Talmud never meant that Rabbi Zer actually went ahead and erased the information he had learned in the Babylonian Talmud. Rather, Rabbi Zer fasted 100 fasts that he could impact himself and change his very nature, start learning the Jerusalem Talmud. And um, one more text. It is impossible to advance from one level to an entirely greater one without an erasure in between in a way that obliterates the memory and any pleasure of the first level. At that point, the person is ready to advance to the next level and experience the godly life to be had there. I'll give an example. If you're a person who eats lots of ketchup, you probably won't, won't be able to experience the finer palate of foods, or you're somebody who likes very sweet wine and never understands dry wine. Um, this is the rule when the higher levels categorically greater and lower, and there is no relative value between them. For this reason, we find that whenever there's a situation of advancement from one level to a categorically greater one, there must be something blocking in between. This obstruction cancels the first level to the point that it's completely forgotten, and then it is possible to advance to the greater level. Um, so here's an interesting example. Um, interesting example is, um, did, they, did I put it in here? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Let me show you here. Um, 
really fascinating example that really gets to the core of human nature. In 1968, George Land conducted a research study to test the creativity of 1,600 children ranging from ages three to five who were enrolled in a Head Start program. It's like a preschool program, government preschool program. This was the same creativity test he devised for NASA to help them select innovative engineers and scientists. The assessment worked so well, he decided to try it in children. He then retested the same children at 10 years of age and again at 15 years of age. The result was astounding. The test results amongst five-year-olds, 98% of them were creative. Amongst 10-year-olds, 30% of them were creative. Amongst 15-year-olds, 12 of them, 12% were creative. And the test given to adults, 280,000 adults, only 2% of 280,000 adults were creative. Why do you think that is the case? And that's the question I'm going to pose to you. And uh, please do there in the comments or unmute yourself and let me know why do you think that the uh, five-year-olds are a lot more creative than the adults and as time goes on we lose our creativity well because because it, the creativity is taught right out of you in school okay all right and Riptika, let's hear from you too yeah no i was just going to say i i, I think that uh, as we get older you know, we're concerned about what other people think, uh, their reactions. So a five or 10-year-old really, especially a five-year-old doesn't care, a 10-year-old a little bit more so, a 15-year-old starts to really con get concerned of what others think. And an adult, you know, I think you're so worried about what everybody else thinks that you're, you stifle your own creativity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Take on it. Okay. Any, any other takes? Thank perhaps, you. yeah. Perhaps as you get older and you're dealing, <clears throat> excuse me, with more complex ideas, you're used to so often having to overthink things in the perspective of a five-year-old that you forget the basic building blocks and you forget those basic principles that let you uh, be as creative as they were. Okay, very nice. Any any others? Um, I think many times as you get older, creativity is discouraged, um, and that. What? Pardon me? As you get older, creativity is what? Discouraged. Discouraged, uh-huh. You know, um, and you're really, you know, what's valued oftentimes in the society is things like STEM or, you know, a certain type of way of thinking. And if you think in other ways, you're kind of off your side. Now, but you're, you're an artist, right? Yes, and I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> Yeah, so, so if you're an artist um, and when you write a song, where do, where do you start from? Do you start from a song that you already know? I'll give you an example. I am not an artist. I have tried to write songs. <laughs> they always just sound like a conglomerate of all the songs I know. They never sound original. <laughs> I just uh, grab tunes. Uh, and, huh? Um, well, there are several ways to go about it. It just depends on, um, you know, where your starting point is. I mean, you can learn this. I mean, innately, there's some creativity to it, but you can also learn the skill to channel that creativity. So sometimes when I write a song, sometimes the song, I, sometimes I literally dream the song and I wake up and I like try to get it down in some format. I mean, so, sometimes I literally dream it or I'll be 
driving in the car and I get an idea for for a song right. and I'll build it from so, there. Right. So so here here's but, my take on the yeah right. So here's my take on the creativity and it tails into what you're saying, but um. Yeah, I think everybody had good elements of why creativity is lost. Um, but I think as we get older, we build on our previous notions, past assumptions. And when you are always building your past assumptions, you lose creativity. The example I gave a moment ago is a song. If I can't move past the songs I know, I'm never going to come up with an original song, right? If I'm always building an old songs, um, it's never, I'm never going to have a new song. And uh, people are typically held back by unquestioned assumptions that they have as they grow up. You know, you ever met somebody and you tell them to try something like, oh, no, I, there's no way I could do that, right? You say, why? Well, you know, I've tried a million times. It doesn't work, right? Um, so five-year-olds don't have all this life experience to build off of um, to say, I can't be creative, right? They can come up with any cockamamie idea, right? Sometimes they are cockamamie ideas, but sometimes they're good ideas, right? Five-year-olds can come up with, with some of those brilliant ideas, some of those little crazy ideas. As we get older, we get more timid and we have, you know, maybe a little bit of, you know, thinking about what other people say. And, and we, we, as other people say, we overthink, but I think the overthinking um, is really, we have these paradigms that we don't want to come out looking like a fool. So ultimately what happens is, is, as long as, I guess the real point I'm trying to say is as long as we're only building an old paradigms, we lose creativity. The idea of creativity is having new paradigm. Uh, a space shuttle to space would never happen if you didn't have creative people, right? You need to have some people who are creative to come up with, with these ideas. If we just build off of original ideas, we will not come to, to a, a new understanding, a new creative um, process and idea. Um, just to give you something interesting, just an interesting tidbit of information, um, just to show you how much the world is stuck in old paradigms, you'd be surprised to know that space shuttle rocket boosters are the size of the behind of horses. <laughs> you familiar with that? It, it's, it's a thousand year old problem. Space shuttle rocket boosters are the size of the behinds of horses. So why? So here's, here's an entire uh, chat over here. They, because the boosters were manufactured in Utah, they had to get to Florida. They put them on trains. Trains or uh, the rails of trains are four feet, eight, eight, eight and a half inches wide. Why? Because that's how they did it in England. Why did they do it in England? Because in England, they put it um, on the original roads. Who built those original roads were the Romans. Why did the Romans build the roads four and a half, four feet, eight and a half inches wide? They did that because that's how big their wagons of two horses would carry. Why, so why were the wagons that big? Because the largest part of two horses is the behind of the horse. So you take two horse behinds, put them together. It's approximately four feet, eight and a half inches. So, so our rocket boosters a thousand years later are the size of, of horses because of the of how, everything how it went. And that's just an interesting example of uh, how sometimes certain things in this world are just stuck with a certain thing because we're just, we just keep building on the old paradigm. Um, we keep building on the old way of thinking. Um, here they have an exercise at the bottom of the page, you know, try and design a table that's raised from the floor, but without legs. Um, so when I tell you to design a table, you're never gonna think of something that's raised up in the air, right? You're gonna think, well, get legs, get a table. 
but uh, you know, for example, I was reading the other day about uh, these Amtrak trains that have these beds in them, and these beds are not like sitting on the floor; they're suspended in the air, right? The person that came up with a suspended bed probably was a little creative. Said, "Well, we need to right. Imagine you're you're designing a train, and you're like, man, we, there's no space in here to get a bed, right? And so somebody creative said, there, well, why don't right? Because you would think bed it's got to fit somewhere on the floor, right? And somebody says, no, why don't we?" you know, hang it by, by ropes on the ceiling or whatever it is. And so that's creative thinking. Creative thinking says building off of the original building blocks of our logic is not going to work. Uh, we need to come up with something different. And this is what they call a quantum leap. Anybody here heard the, the statement of quantum leap? Yes. The term was qualified by, by actually a guy called Thomas Kuhn in the 1960s. And, um, he said that there's science that, that builds off of old ideas, but then there's science that's revolutionary in what, what he called a, a quantum leap. And so what I'm trying to present over here is that there's a cumulative growth that can happen in the world. That's one paradigm, but a cumulative growth is always gonna have a limitation. You won't get to the next stage. You won't have trains with, uh, you, you know, you won't have a Tesla, I don't think. You won't have, uh, or whatever, rocket ship he makes too, probably doesn't fit with the behinds of the animals either, right? Um, it, you know, you, in order to break out of old molds, we have to be a five-year-old again, not to be stuck by our old paradigms and our old ideas. And um, let me just go over all this in, uh, in the uh, PowerPoint, just because sometimes people like repetition. So we said that Rabbi Zaira, uh, forgot the Babylonian Talmud to remember the Jerusalem Talmud. Why was it important for him to do that? Because he had to reset himself to a new way of discovering ideas. He was not trying to forget the information. He was trying to forget the old ideas and to grow from A to B when A to B are worlds apart. It's absolutely necessary to cancel. And that's a popular word, right? Cancel. Cancel A before moving to B. So he was the original cancel culture. Um, so why are people less creative as they get older? Uh, da, 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 and all right, so that's those are the ideas. So now let's discuss this: how this applies in our life and how it applies in the resurrection. So I've I've been uh, obviously very nicely describing this general idea: the difference between a quantum leap and a cumulative growth. And again, the difference between two is if you want a same old, same old, uh, you stick with that. So the resurrection of the dead, as we can imagine, is the ultimate quantum leap, okay? Uh, the era of Mashiach is not necessarily a quantum leap. It can be a building block, as we discussed in our classes on the Mashiach. It says when Mashiach comes, Maimonides says there's no difference between this world and the era of Mashiach, except in the era of Mashiach, we'll live in the land of Israel, we'll, we'll control our own destiny, we'll have a religious state run by the Mashiach, whatever it is. Um, we won't be subjugated to our enemies, but ultimately it's kind of the same world, just a more perfect world. It's like going back to the days of King Solomon, which is vastly different than today, but it's accumulative. It's not so different from today that it's impossible to imagine. One can imagine the days of King Solomon again, right? Conversely, resurrection is a quantum leap. There is nothing in this world that that will would connect us with the idea of uh, the resurrection with the idea of people coming back alive. Uh, the closest we have is cloning, but that's not really the same idea. And so 
in order to get from a world of no resurrection to a world of resurrection, which the world of resurrection, by the way, is not just defined by the fact that people come back to life, but the, the, the godly revelation in that time will also be a quantum leap. If we want to get from our world as it is today to that world, we need to reset. We need to press the reset button. We need to, so to speak, forget our old paradigms. And that is the message and idea that we all have to die before the resurrection. I asked earlier, what's the point? Why do we need to die before the resurrection? You only need to be resurrected if you happen to be dead. But if we're alive, why do we need to die? And the answer is because we need to have a reset in order to enter in that new era of resurrection. And that's the idea of returning to dust. Returning to dust, it says even the righteous people, right? They were dead for many years, but intact, they need to return to dust. Why do they need to return to dust? Because the idea of returning to dust, dust is the idea of nothing, right? Dust is, is like the lowest, the lowliest particle in this world that we typically look at is dust. It's nothing, it's dust. You know, he's like, he's like dust and ashes, right? Dust and ashes, he's nothing. Or what we call in Hebrew, bitul, nullification. Abraham said, Abraham said about himself, I am but dust and ashes. When he wanted to describe his nullification and humility to God, he said, I am but dust and ashes. So returning to dust means we have to get to a state where whatever pre-ideas we had are batel, are nullified. Let me give you a example in Jewish law for nullification. If you have a pot of milk, sorry, you have a pot of meat, nice big talent, and a drop of milk falls into it, is it kosher? Who knows? You have a big pot of meat and a drop of milk falls into it, is it kosher? Well, I heard yes, that it is. Kosher. It's kosher? Is there a qualification for that? 160. 160th, very good. If there is one particle of milk to 60 parts of chalent, then it's nullified. And it's nullified to the point where it's as if it doesn't exist. It's not like we say, well, it's there, but it doesn't bother you. It's, it's as if it doesn't exist. And that's the idea of bitul, nullification. You nullify it to the point where, where it ceases to exist. And so that's what has to happen um, before the Mashiach comes is that we have to get to a level where we totally, totally nullify our previous preconceived notions. In fact, the Rebbe actually explains that it's possible if we can reach this, if we can behave in a way of bitul, if we can behave in a way that we nullify our preconceived notions, we may not have to die. In other words, the whole idea of, of having to die to get the resurrection is to achieve this bitul to nullify our preconceived notions. But if we can do that without dying, then we may not have to die. But how would this apply in my life? How would the idea of bitul, of nullifying, in other words, to get from step A to step B, when they're very far apart, you need to have, so to speak, a vacuum in the middle. You need to have, you know what, let me, uh, let me play you this video. You know, what? maybe this will give you an idea in your uh, life. And, and if it talks in tongues, please let me know. Um, but I, I think it had to do with that computer. Uh, this is a nice, quick little video and uh, may give you a little bit of an idea of what I'm talking about over here. And go. I was having blood work done. It was a standard medical test and the nurse would be taking a few small vials of my blood. 
The nurse drew the blood quickly and the red fluid began filling the clear container. She then removed the vial while the needle was still in place, getting ready to attach the next vial. And wonder of wonders, the needle was still in me, still creating that hole from which the blood was escaping my veins, but the blood was staying put inside my veins, waiting until the next vial was in place. Because though the needle pokes the hole, it isn't the needle that draws the blood. It isn't even the efficient, no-nonsense nurse. It is the vacuum in the syringe. And only when the vial is empty does the blood fill it. Because an empty vessel draws in with greater intensity than one which is full. Life too has ups and downs. There are times when we feel like we're on top of the world. And there are periods when we feel like an empty vacuum. We feel inadequate, at a loss, dejected. It's those very vacuums and feelings of emptiness that we can use to motivate us to bring improvement to our lives. But in order to do so, we need to first become an empty vial. Only an individual who isn't already full of himself, too assured and too full of his way of doing things, can make room for positive change and become a vacuum that draws in more goodness to our world. So there you have one practical idea of what we're talking about over here. Sometimes we can um, get rid of our paradigms ourselves, but sometimes it comes to us. We, we get to a moment in our life when we feel empty, when everything that we've been doing doesn't work. And sometimes that's the greatest catalyst for growth because at that moment we feel so empty when we feel whatever we're trying doesn't work, we give up on our old notions because we realize it's not working and there's something else we need to do. Sometimes the greatest moments of growth in our life had been when we feel so empty. And it was a great example. She said over there that, you know, it's not the, it's not the hole that creates the growth. It's the vacuum. A vacuum, a lack creates greater greatness. And that's what Rabbi Zingaro was telling us is when you get rid of everything, when you create a vacuum, that can actually create more space to, uh, for greater growth. So let's take this in our, in our uh, Jewish life, right? Say you're toying with the idea of becoming more re religiously committed. Uh, you've decided you want to live more of a Torah life, more values. Many, many times, if we want to uh, progress in our Torah values, we need to get rid of our preconceived notions. If we're going to grow in our Torah values step by step, it's not always going to work. We're going to come to a roadblock somewhere because Torah is God's values, which are infinite, and we're finite. It's not always going to work in step by step. By definition, we are human beings mired in the mundane life. We're mired in physical pursuits. And to be exposed to the depth and the impact of Torah is near impossible. The only way to do it is to create within ourselves a vacuum to be able to allow ourselves to understand the Torah. The Rebbe gives a great example. He says, for example, um, the Rebbe says, some people come to the Torah and study it in a very scientific method. And they're very much concerned with empirical matters. Uh, if anybody here has ever, uh, we always have uh, a great friend that sometimes comes in the classes or in Shul, right? He always says, where does it say it in the Torah, right? Uh, can you show me the exact place that it says it? The Torah works in a very different way than other studies. But you have to open yourself up to that. The only way to open yourself up to that is sometimes to let go of our previous methods and our previous notions. Another great example of this is gender roles in the Torah. Um, in the world, there's a big discussion about men and women being equal and the same. And in Judaism, although we believe everybody's equal, they're not the same. 
everybody is equal, everybody has equal purpose, but we are not the same. We have different missions, slightly different missions, and we do it in different ways. But as long as you're stuck on that notion of everybody has to be the same exact, you're never going to appreciate the Jewish uh, view of gender roles. You have to come to appreciate that maybe there's a different way of looking at it. Even if you don't agree with it, let's say, let's say somebody never gets it, but you have to appreciate that there is a different way of looking at it. And um, that's what I've seen many times. You know, when people come to me and ask me about gender roles, that's because they, they have one paradigm. They, they can't understand the, the, the Torah value paradigm of gender roles because they're in one paradigm. You have to sometimes let go of your old notions to get into a new one. Uh, another thing would be, uh, another great example would be Torah's ideas of let's say end of life. Uh, today, there's a lot of discuss discussion of palliative care and you know, in the world is a very, it's a compassionate thing to help the person die, right? And in Judaism, we, we have a totally different outlook on that. And again, it's a, it's a different paradigm and it comes from understanding things in a different way. The same thing happens in our commitment to Judaism. Um, you know, sometimes we're stuck every morning. I have to read the news, right? And so the rabbi comes and talks in the synagogue. First thing in the morning you got to do is you got to pray. And you say, well, I have my morning ritual. I first get up, I have a coffee, I, I read the news and I'm busy in the morning and I can't get, I can't get up a half hour early. I, I need exactly an amount of sleep. I can't pray in the morning before I go to work. I'm going to do it later. Sometimes we have to change our paradigm saying, I know I can't get up a half hour early, but I, I will get up a half hour early, right? Um, if that's what's necessary to pray in the morning. Again, it's changing our paradigms. In other words, instead of trying to fit Judaism within our current paradigm, sometimes we need to get rid of our paradigms and ideas in order to uh, allow Judaism into our life. Um, just uh, on a fascinating note, we were watching a video Saturday night. Uh, someone came to the Rebbe and, and asked the Rebbe, it's a great, great example of changing paradigm. He came to the Rebbe and told the Rebbe, you know, what's, you know I can't get, you know, his, basically the story was this guy, his wife had become very involved in Judaism and he was not, he, he was not so interested. And he told the Rebbe, you know, I can't understand the, uh, why would God care if, 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 if the meat spoon lands up in the cottages of the other way around? All this, he said, all this minutia, like, what does God care about it? And the Rebbe said, it's not for him, it's for us. All these laws are not for God, it's for us. It's for us to give us paths and ways to connect to him. And God gives us so many different ways and paths to connect to him. And as the guy said, it totally shifted my outlook. Totally, I never thought of it in that way. Totally changed my view on the whole minutia of the mitzvahs. And, and then he could appreciate it. And obviously over time, he, he got more involved in it. And so that's the idea is... This is the idea of what we were teaching here about the resurrection and Rabbi Zera. All this idea in our life is sometimes in order to get to the next level, it's not going to come accumulative. If you keep hitting a roadblock and, and you keep saying, well, I can't get to the next stage. It doesn't make any sense to me. It, it, it doesn't fit. It can't fit in my life. It can't fit in my brain. It can't fit here. It can't. If it doesn't fit, maybe you're too stuck in a certain way and you need to go back to being a five-year-old for a moment. You need to go back to letting go for a moment. Um, there was once a story of um, the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe. And uh, one time after Rosh Hashanah, he asked his, he asked his, uh, he asked his son also who became the next Rebbe, he said, tell me, uh, what did you daven with on Rosh Hashanah? 
And uh, so he told him one of the verses, you know, in front of you, God, we're all like nothing. And then he asked his father, you know, the, the altar, he says, and so what did you daven with in Rosh Hashanah? He said, me, I daven with a stender, a stender, the lectern, you know, that holds your books. <laughs> so most people think it's a joke. He daven with, well, of course he daven with a stender. Of course he daven with a lectern. That's what you hold on to, right? And the Rebbe actually took this story. He said, the story is told us not because they're making a joke. What he was saying was, you know, we have all our great ideas of connecting to God and, 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 and it will all, the, the, this passage and that passage. And sometimes the real way of connecting with God is saying, I'm like the stender. I'm a, I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. I'm just the lowly stender, you know, a, a non, so to speak, non-thinking. I'm, I'm back to being an inanimate object. That's the way to connect to God sometimes. Um, but that's the idea. Is sometimes the way to get further is by totally forgetting our other ideas. A great example in this is actually told. It says about angels in the in the in the um, in the prophets. It says that angels. It says that they're standing. They're stagnant. What does it mean? They're stagnant. They don't grow. But the answer is they grow, but they only grow incrementally in their connection with God. By us, only human beings, we have the opportunity and the ability to jump from one level to the next, to go exponentially from one level to the next. But the only way we do that is if in between we get rid of our old paradigms. Otherwise, if you try to jump too far, it's like I always tell people, if you're taking a ladder, you take two steps in the ladder at once, you're going to fall. Because when you're, when you're climbing in relative matter, you, can, you have to go incrementally and you're stuck on that. But what if you're jumping on from an elevator, from, from, a, from a ladder to an elevator, you know, you have to get a whole different paradigm. But I want to finish off with a story that really brings all of this home. Oh, I might be finishing early. I might have to come up with a couple more things. No, I'm kidding. Oh, so I want to finish off with a story. The story goes like this. There was one time uh, Hasidic Rebbe, I forget his name. I could pick a name, but I don't really remember. So there's one time, I believe it was the Baal Shem Tov, but I'm not entirely sure. There's one time a Hasidic Rebbe, and uh, he would travel from town to town often with his, with his Hasidim, with his followers. And, uh, you know, he would sometimes go through rural, uh, rural uh, villages. And it was one time he stayed by the inn of one of his Hasidim, the inn of one of his followers. And this Hasid of his was truly a righteous, righteous person, had barely any money, but, uh, um, but, uh, he, he, he was very hospitable and, and really took care of the Rebbe and everything. And the Rebbe stayed at his inn, very rundown inn, and, you know, he took care of his Rebbe. And uh, before the Rebbe leaves, he told his, uh, he told his chassid, he said, I want you, I, I want you to give me X amount of money. He gave him a high amount of money that he had to give him. A lot, a lot of money for tzedakah. And when he left, the chassidim said, you know, this is cruel. You're asking this guy for so much money. And so what, what this chassid did in the end was he, he actually went, he sold the last thing he had. It was a goat, the goat where he used to get his milk from. He went and sold the goat and he brought the money to the Rebbe. And uh, his wife came back home, said, you're Meshuga. And the chassidim came to the Rebbe and said, that's, that's, that's cruel. That's, that's, that's not nice. You're taking the guy's last bit of money from him. What's going on? And the Rebbe told him, don't worry, you're going to see. You're going to see. I'm not cruel. You're going to see what's going to happen. A year later, they all came back, all the Hasidim with the entourage came back to the hotel, but this time the hotel, instead of being the Red Roof Inn that we have over here, the Palm Harbor Inn over here that we have over here, you know, with bed bugs, 
it was a Taj Mahal. It was it was the King David Citadel or whatever they have that in Israel, right? It was a five star hotel with a, a floating glass pool. No, okay, obviously not that, but you get the idea. It was a beautiful place. They stayed there and they were served the finest food and a total transformation in one year. And the Hasidim asked the Rebbe, what happened? You know, we, we know we were here last year. How did this guy suddenly become so wealthy? And the Rebbe said, here's the story. This guy I saw in heaven, I saw that he was deserving of a lot of wealth. But in heaven, he was only going to get it if he would really ask for it, if he would really pray to God. And the problem was, he was such a holy person. He was always content with what he had. He was always happy with what he had. So he would never really pray for himself for anything that he needed. And so he said, what I had to do is I had to break him. I had to take his last hope of money. I had to take from him every last vestige of possibility of making any money. And then he turned to God and he prayed to God. And then God sent to the riches that were waiting for him in heaven. And so that's sometimes the idea. That's what we have to bring into our lives. Sometimes the next stage of growth is stuck because we're, we're comfortable in our own ways. You know, the people that go to work that never get further in life because they don't want to risk it, right? No risk it, no biscuit, as they say, right? They don't want to risk it that they're comfortable in their job. They're afraid to change jobs. Those people are stuck in mediocrity forever. And we want to make sure in our Jewish life and truly in our life in general, this applies in our Jewish life, but also in our regular day-to-day -day life, which is also Jewish life, by the way, because every moment of the day should be Jewish. But we want to make sure in our Jewish life, we're not stuck in our old paradigms. We want to make sure we are going to take the next step. So if you feel there's a blockade in your religious observance or in any part of your life, maybe take a moment and examine. Maybe I'm stuck at something because I'm not willing to take the leap of faith. Maybe I'm stuck at something and not willing to jump to the next thing. And the Rebbe used to give one, one final example I'll give you is, although never trust her when he says final, uh, is, you know, he says, the Rebbe, there were people who used to write to the Rebbe, you know, I'll do all the mitzvahs when I understand them. And the Rebbe used to tell them that's like, that's like, God forbid, somebody who has mental illness, who's not going to take the pill until they understand why they should take the pill, right? Sometimes when they take the pill, then they understand why they need the pill. The Rebbe says the same thing. If you, uh, by the way, I don't think the example is about mental illness. It might've been about other things, but definitely about a pill. The Rebbe said, so the same thing over here. Sometimes we need to start doing the mitzvahs to actually appreciate them. You may say, how can I keep Shabbos? It's 24 hours, it's so hard. Go spend 24 hours, go spend a Shabbos. Go, go to a friend, spend a Shabbos by a friend. You say, how can I study for an hour a day? Or how can I get up a half hour earlier? How can I, whatever it is, go try it. Go try and do, go experience it. How can I come to synagogue and understand the Hebrew? Go and try these things because sometimes what's holding us back is our preconceived notions. And sometimes the only way to break it is to take that step in a moment of nullification saying, I don't understand it. I'm going to take that next step. And that may be the catalyst for the growth in your life. And so, l'chaim, l'chaim, as we say, may we experience the resurrection of the dead very, very soon. Uh, we are now obviously in the three weeks. We pray to God that we should experience this quantum leap. We should all experience this level of nullification in our lives so we won't have to actually die. We'll be able to get to that, that next level just by the way we are acting in the here and now in the today by taking a quantum leap in our own lives. So thank you so much for coming. And um, I will now close the Facebook.